Welcome, Nadia. I have been looking forward to this conversation for so long. I've followed you for a while and I can't wait to nitpick your brain on some of the topics we are going to hopefully speak about today. Thank you. It's definitely nice to um, finally speak to you as well again. I'm like, it feels like we've known each other for a long time. So it's always funny when you finally make that connection. It's like, oh, it does met. I know. Before we get into some of the topics, like I really want to talk about people pleasing, the dynamics of the masculine and feminine energy. So I find that really interesting. I feel like I've been someone who's been in my masculine energy forever and I've never really understood what it meant. But before we obviously get into that and your journey and background, I have just started doing a new segment and you're going to actually be my first guest. It's called Own Your Shit. It's a moment of vulnerability because I think that that's super important. But yeah, pretty much it's a chance for you to connect with the listeners and me, maybe share something that you're going through or you're working through or something, emotions or thoughts that keep coming up. Or maybe it's even been something that's been brought to your attention recently. Like, oh, okay, maybe I need to put some attention forward to that. Yeah, I think that obviously we all go through our own shit and we're all doing and navigating life. What's something that you're currently, I guess, navigating through? Oh, there's a few ways I could go with this. I'm trying to decide which one to go to. But you know what? I reckon this one's maybe quite on brand because we're going to get into the people-pleasing thing. So I'll talk about this. So I was a big people-pleaser. And what happens is you tend to overcorrect when you try to resolve a problem. So I was a big people-pleaser. And the way that I started to resolve that was get really clear on what I wanted, what I needed, and what I expected. And become quite like unwavering with that is kind of where it started. It was really like, this is what I expect. This is how I expect it. Let's go. Um, and recently it's really come up and started becoming quite an issue in my relationship. Like me and my partner have been together for nearly a year. And like the feedback that I'm receiving is that sometimes it can feel like my, like I have a lot of expectations and that I can be maybe a bit unreasonable in how they're being delivered and stuff. Like it's been said that maybe I give too much feedback. I'm not able to just sort of stay in the moment and let the person, you know, maybe course correct next time. Like every time something is in the way that I want it to be, it's like, oh, we have to talk about it and we have to get into it. And, you know, we're going to talk about masculine and feminine, but the masculine doesn't really like that. The masculine doesn't like to be told what to do or told how to do it. It likes to be kind of given an environment where it's allowed to flourish and I've probably been bringing a bit of masculine energy and sort of like not figured out. And it's really hard for me because I have that voice in me going, no, like, you know, look what happened in the past when you kept doing it the way other people wanted to do it. You kept compromising on your expectations and you kept doing what other people wanted. And trying to find that balance has been really hard because there's like two voices in my head and one's like, hold your ground. And the other one's like, be reasonable. And I haven't figured it out quite yet, you know, and it's been yeah, challenging like for my partner and for me. And yeah, I'm not at the other side of it. I'm very like in the middle of it. I kind of, I know what he means now. At the start, I wouldn't, I was like, you're being stupid. I'm being really reasonable. Now I'm at the point where I see and I understand the problem, but I'm not quite at a point where we've come to resolution about it. It's very much like me having a, that whole like pick your battles piece and also kind of looking at um where's that coming from for me. I think there is a bit of a, self-esteem piece playing out there as well. I've had a lot of self-esteem issues growing up and have come a really long way, but I definitely think I've kind of hit a point like perfectionism is can also come from like low self-esteem, right? But I think there's a bit of that playing in there as well of like 
me having attached to things being a certain way. And when they are that way, like I'm good enough, my relationship's good enough, my life's good enough. And that actually getting in the way of me being able to be present and appreciate like what is, you know? So that's probably like the that I'm trying to own at the moment is like, yeah, kind of towing that line of like, have I gone too far the other way from the people pleasing stuff and finding a way to tow that that feels like supportive and loving for my partner, but also feels like my, I'm not like compromising on myself too much. Yeah. So that's probably one of my little things at the moment. Something's still up for me, but I was literally with my family on the weekend and my dad was literally like to me, you need to stop analyzing and trying to fix people in a way like that that's my issue I'm always trying to fix the situation and please other people and like give unsolicited advice but I think sometimes that's important but then other times I'm overstepping boundaries and I need to pull myself back and like you said be present because not everyone wants that advice and not everyone wants to be fixed I feel like that's something I'm that's a constant cycle for me (laughs) that's one of the biggest lessons I've had to learn like is don't don't give anyone advice they didn't ask for. That should just be a hard rule because they're not going to listen and you're going to get frustrated and they're going to get frustrated. So like hard rule is don't give advice no one asked for and like learning what to do with that voice. So yeah, I've definitely been where you are. For me, it's like now yeah. only happening in the container of the relationship because that's kind of somewhere where you kind of, there is this constant feedback loop, but even then it's being like, well, sometimes you just have to appreciate that that's how someone else wants to do it, you know? But I think that's like a real challenge of a, a therapist or a psychologist, like knowing how to turn that on and off is like, I can empathize with that challenge. Yeah. You've studied psychology, haven't you? That was my next question. What has been your background and journey with mental health yeah. so far to get to the person that you are now? Yeah. I guess there's sort of two sides of that. There's like what happened for me personally. And what happened, like, I guess, more academically and professionally. I think personally, um, I'll try to give this in like a succinct way, but I just grew up in a fairly like broken home, I suppose. Like mum had a really severe mental illness. She was in hospital within a few weeks of me being born and we were like sort of separated immediately. My dad is Middle Eastern and like very religious and kind of that came with challenges with my dad's family as well. And I just like really have a lot of abandonment. Like my mom was gone. My dad was gone. I got moved around from this family member to that family member. Like, honestly, like the first, you know, until I was able to move out and pay my own rent, the amount of times I got moved and kicked out of places and moved around was like a lot. And that just created a lot of challenges within me, you know, plus mom having a really severe mental illness and the up and down of that, like that constant re-abandoning process and all the kind of harm that comes when, you know, she's got, um, multiple personality disorder or schizophrenia depending over the years her like diagnosis has changed but it's pretty intense like she had big manic episodes and yeah. end up bike wards and like would be seeing things she would call the police on my dad and we'd have the police rocking up at our house in the middle of the night like you know a lot of really full-on things like that happen and it just led to me being in a really kind of not in a great mental space but also just being really curious about people like why do people do this stuff like, why is my dad like that? Why is my mom like that? Why are other people's families like this and mine are not? Why does this keep happening to me? Like, and I think that is ultimately a bit of what led me into the psych stuff. I think I just had a lot of questions that I wanted answering and I found a way to answer them externally. Um, and that kind of led me into my psych degree, which I did. And then I think, again, a conversation you and I were having earlier is that I don't really fall into the traditional model. I can be a bit anti-establishment. And as a result of that, 
intertwine with everything that I learned within my uni degree. I also had a girlfriend who like saw a coach when I was finishing my degree. She saw this coach like nine sessions and she changed so much in those nine sessions and she'd been seeing a psych the whole time I'd known her and nothing had changed. So a combination of those two things really like gave me that push to be like, you know what, I'm going to take a break from uni. I did coaching and stuff instead. And that's kind of naturally progressed on that end. And as well as that, I, um, when I was 21, I, again, had just gone through a pretty like tough and kicked out of home and was not in a very good place and ended up with a job as a receptionist at a construction and ended up progressing into a career in HR. So I actually worked five years in HR as well as having done the psych degree and the coaching. And those things coming together gives you the mental health and the performance stuff. So I got that kind of corporate performance goals, efficiency training there. And then I got that more mental health and like those more skills from the coaching and the psych course. And then again, even more so over the last couple of years, I've been introduced to a few people that were really into breath work, that were really into meditation, that are really into like functional medicine. So like the whole gut health and your diet and sleep and all of that's impact on the way you perform mentally and physically. So all of those things have sort of come together. And I kind of joke, I'm like, and the Swiss army knife of coaches, like you could go see anyone and they might have more experience in any one of the 10 topics that I know about. But I'm a really good place to start because I can take you to a really decent level on all 10 of those places where you might have needed 10 people and kind of can can meet all those needs. And then when if there's a time that you outgrow me, can pass you on to the people that I learned from in those categories to grow further. But I guess that's sort of like how kind of has all developed for me. And like these days, I sort of do the mental health, the mental performance, the corporate stuff, and then the relationship stuff, which... I think is very much progressed from my own life experience. Again, like wanting to understand myself. I was a woman that ran out of masculine energy and I was like, what is this thing? And like, how is it affecting my life, my relationships? And then through that journey of exploration for myself, I then started coaching externally. And I think that's like very much me. Like I, everything probably started selfishly, whether I realized it or not. It was starting from a place of these are my problems in my life. How do I fix it? And then I went and I, fix them, I guess. And I realized that I could then save someone else having to go through the same pain I did by passing those lessons on outward, you know, and that's very much a lot of what I've done as I progressed from place. And then now over time, as I guess expanded, like I do work with people that have been through different things than I have and are doing more and different things than I did, but that's very much how it started. Kind of like not just coaching from a book, but coaching from my experience plus what I had learned and bringing them together, which I think is like an important synergy to have in whoever you work with, like is a person that has balance with people that have all the life experience and none of the education, which can be dangerous. And there can be people that have all the um, education, none of the life experience. And I just find that often isn't very effective. So like finding a good combination of both, I think is pretty cool. What was the relationship like with your mom, like even now? So I don't really have a relationship with her at the moment very much. So like growing up, we were actually really close when I was little, but it was really challenging because obviously she'd break down like really regularly. And when she did, okay, like, let me tell you examples of what, so I would be at school and I would like get a call to be like, oh, hey, like your mum's like butt naked on a tram in the city at the moment. Like you need to call the cat. Or um, she'd come and put me ball when I was five and she'd shaved her entire head like Britney Spears on a meltdown. And I cried and refused to go home with her and said she wasn't my mum. She like, so she used to have like full on manic episodes and every time she would, it was like, 
heartbreaking and traumatic and stressful and upsetting, you know, but ultimately like throughout my childhood, we, we always repaired at the end of those situations, especially because the environment of my dad's house wasn't really nice. Like my stepmom really didn't get along. Like she was quite horrible. And I was like very depressed and really didn't enjoy being at my dad's house. It was really tough. So mom's house is the only place where I was allowed to do things like have sleepovers and see my friends and like have like a normal, like not strict life. So when mom would get sick, I would like, not only was I losing my mom and all these horrible, scary things were happening, but I also was like losing any fun or freedom out of my life, you know? So it was really challenging, but ultimately mine and mom's relationship really broke down. My one rule was don't have any more kids because my dad was like stable financially and mentally at least. So I knew I always had like people to look after me and I just really was not okay with her potentially risking putting someone else through that. And then she got pregnant. She decided to keep the baby. I have a little brother now. And after my brother was born, we've just never really like repaired again. Like ultimately when he was three, she had a really big breakdown. And I sort of said, hey, like it's either pick the family or pick a partner that she had at the time. And she ended up picking the partner. And then we actually didn't talk for about eight or nine years. And then um, a couple of years ago, my best friend's dad died. And when he died, it made me go like, you know, if she dies, like, am I okay with the way things were? And it probably made me realize like I wasn't. And we reconnected and since then have seen each other like a handful of times. Like I might go see her for Christmas or um, we've had a couple of coffees and kind of spoken a little bit about what's happened over the years. But like, we don't really have much of a relationship, but it's probably what is it's going to get in my life. Depression. Was that something that you struggled growing up? So interesting, like, no, I've had two instances of it. Like, I was very much the other way, like, very, like, get up and get on with it, you know, and kind of never stopped and sat in my feelings. But there was two occasions, like, as I mentioned, when I was about 16, things had gone really, really bad um, with my dad and my stepmom. Um, didn't really have a relationship with mom at that stage. And I got, like, I pretty much just turned around. It was To be fair, it was a very weird form of depression, very matter of fact. I just kind of turned around to my uncle and auntie and was like, I'm going to kill myself if you don't help me leave. Like I wasn't even like, it wasn't like I couldn't get out of bed. I just was like, if I can't get out of this situation, like I'm just going to kill myself. So you guys need to help me get out of it or like that's what I'm, you know, and they did. They helped me get out. Um, And I was like, again, I guess fairly in a weird way, fairly okay. Like in a very like suppressed, repressed, not dealing with my emotions. And then finally uh, lockdown, probably the third Melbourne lockdown. I had met who I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. I had met a partner and we broke up. I was like alone in lockdown, like had done a lot of work. So I wasn't as able to like repress and turn off my emotions anymore. So, you know, being alone, feeling abandoned and like by him and being alone and living alone and not having family and friends and also having lost my like hard shell exterior that people used to call strengths that was really just a manifestation of my trauma I had worked through that and I just like buckled and like was really like really really depressed I couldn't get out of bed wasn't eating wasn't doing my grocery shopping um and was lucky enough to have a few people like a a friend and an old boss at the time that really like helped pull me out of that place and that was really my first ever experience of feeling depressed and I always joke looking back that I'm glad it happened because it's helped me with clients because I never really could get my head around depression prior to that. I was very like, 
I could just always muster the energy to get up. And I just couldn't understand how people couldn't. And having that experience of just like literally just, just literally nothing. I was like, oh, okay. Like I get it now. Like I understand where people are coming from, which has made it so, I guess, easier for me to be able to relate and like support those people. Yeah. It does make a difference when like you've kind of gone through it or like you're able to shift your mindset because you have gone through something similar. I think COVID did that for a lot of us, right? Like we had to sit with ourselves and we had to own our shit. And while it was really hard for a lot of people with finances and jobs and family and stuff, I feel like for me, definitely it made me sit with my shit and work on myself. And I know I said before, like I was really, I am really into breath work. That's how I kind of came across it at the start of COVID and I started doing it. And yeah, if COVID didn't happen, I don't think I would have ever been open to it or yeah, set aside the time to go, okay, you're going to start doing five minutes of breath work in the morning, every morning, and hopefully we can see some benefits. And yeah, I just, I'm glad that COVID happened in a way for me. Yeah. And I guess it's kind of the same for you. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that probably like, I, you know, I think it, it was a horrible time and it was a horrible situation. Yeah. But I think that it's like ultimately everything, you can find a silver lining in everything. And exactly what you said, like so many people were forced to like, things caught up with them, you know, like, and then they either did something productive mm-hmm. with that or they didn't. But it was a lot harder to be in denial of the reality of what was serving you or wasn't serving you like when you were in that environment for an extended period of time, especially if you're in Melbourne. Did you form any coping mechanisms that you were aware of? So I have maladaptive ones, if we want to talk about my bad coping mechanisms. Yeah, like like I said, I just, um, I became very get up and get on with it. Like it was just sort of, I didn't linger in things. I didn't allow myself to sort of sit and stay in it, the emotions for too long. I just was very action oriented. Like I have this belief that like everything is energy, right? So when a negative thing happens to you, it has a lot of energy and you can let that energy uh, grind you into the ground or you can use that energy to do something else with it. And I just became very good at alchemizing that energy into something more positive, I guess, and turning it into something I could do. But I do think um, that has a shelf life, right? And it is what I needed to do to survive. Like I like I mentioned, I, I went through a fair bit and I had to get through that time and I did. And then they hit a point where I was like, okay, you don't have to survive anymore. And I did have to go back and kind of, I joked that I had like Pandora's box inside me and everything was in there. And one day I would open it and deal with what was in there. But like, I just didn't have the time yet, you know? And I did eventually. And like I said, it opened in lockdown and it was pretty like heavy. But um, yeah, for me, it was like redirecting that energy into something more positive because it was, it, it has that heaviness. Like you feel it when you're sad. So that heavy heaviness is either going to get in between you and things or you use it to kind of move you, you know? Um, I think that was a big one for me. Um, also, like, I guess I was pretty like extroverted and social. So I think connection with people um, really helped as well, like building relationships and, and having those to move through. But again, also like I ended up in a lot of like the wrong type of relationships because I wasn't coming from the right place with those, you know, it was a lot of like, Again, wanting to feel better, wanting to feel whole and get meeting friends or partners that like made me feel whole. And again, it helped me survive to a point. But then again, there being a point where I realized, okay, um, I now have to like be okay by myself so that I can connect with people in the right way, you know? Um, and yeah, to be honest, like growing up, I probably didn't have a whole lot of like positive, then I did drugs and I partied and like 
you know, I did a lot of really not great things until I did my psych degree and I started to learn about meditation and reading and sitting in silence and the benefits of exercise and, you know, and then more recently like breath work and cold water and like I have always talked to therapists, like I've always had psychologists or um, coaches that's been, you know, kinesiology, like I've always kind of used those things, but I didn't have a lot of internal practices that were very positive, honestly, until like I was, it started kind of a hit rock bottom, probably about 21. And then from 21 to now I'm 29, there's been, you know, an uphill climb of learning a lot more resourceful coping mechanisms like throughout. Um, Like you were in the party scene, I guess you could say as a form of a coping mechanism with friends and stuff. Yeah. What would you kind of say to someone who is in that, but also thinks that or maybe isn't even aware that they are forming connections based off people who are drinking and doing alcohol and they kind of use the excuse that it is fun, but it's this constant loop of I feel shit and then turning back to these people, I'm drinking, I'm doing drugs every weekend, but they don't necessarily see it as a problem. Did you kind of realise one day that it was a problem or did you always know that maybe it wasn't? No, I thought I was having a good time. What do you mean, Dal? I thought I was having a great time. To be fair, like I never smoked, um, I never smoked ice. And in my head, I was like, well, I don't have a problem. I don't smoke ice. Only people that smoke ice are like, you know. I'm not a junkie. Yeah, that's it. I'm not fucked. I'm going to use that terminology. It doesn't matter if I stayed up three days with the people that were smoking ice. I'm not smoking it. I don't have a problem. You know, so I didn't think I had a problem. And honestly, for me, like I'll tell you how I did it and then I'll give you an alternative is I honestly just like mm-hmm. you wake up enough mornings feeling like fucking shit after a weekend and you have enough negative things happen in the, those relationships that all of a sudden one day it becomes impossible to ignore that this is like bad and we all have a different tolerance right I've always been a bit of a perfectionist so it didn't take me I didn't get as as deep or as loose I guess as some people did because my expectations on myself were pretty high. So like I didn't, you know, I failed one uni subject and I think that was like a real moment where I was like, oh, okay, something has to change. Like I can't fail another uni subject. Like that wasn't an option. So it kind of helped start climbing me out of that group. And like, I guess I was lucky that I made some relationships within that scene that served me as well. Like friends that like weren't, they helped as much, they might've hurt, but they also helped, you know? So for me, I like, only found out because just it becomes more and more painful the more you do it and eventually the pain got so high that I registered there was a problem looking back and like this would be my test to you test it out for yourself like um just decide you're not going to go out for a whole weekend and you're not going to drink or do drugs for a whole weekend and see how you feel and what I think now looking back at what I didn't identify was I actually would get like this anxiety coming into a Saturday night if I didn't have plans. Like I would, something would start building inside of me. I felt sad and dark and I just would be like, oh, I'd be like on the phone texting until I found something to do. And looking back, part of the process of getting out of that place was spending like Saturday nights, especially Sunday nights at home alone, just upset and hurting. But hearing whatever it was that was making me feel dark because I needed to sit and identify what those feelings were so that I could, you know how I said at the start, like I'm at the point where I've identified the problem, but now I need to know what to do with it. It was that, like 
when you're partying, you don't have enough time to see and understand what the problem is. So how can you do anything about it? So, you know, at least say to yourself, like, once a month, you're going to stay home from a Friday to a Sunday and you're going to just like sit with yourself and just notice what comes up. And I think that as uncomfortable and horrible as it'll be, like you need to hear whatever dark shit your brain is saying to yourself in those days, because that's going to tell you what it is you need to do. Like emotions are not there to hurt you. And what you're running from. Exactly. That's it. What are you running from? Like, what is it that you keep, that keeps forcing you to run back into the party scene? You know, like they are communicating with you and sometimes you're not going to like what they have to say, but you need to hear them for your own sake. I think like I have had my fair share of all of that. And something that I say to people all the time is like what you've just said, once you start to step away from it, you realize, and obviously you deal with your shit, but you realize how much it does affect your mood and your energy and everything. And you'll get to a point where you don't want to do it. And the thought of actually going back and drinking and stuff on the weekends, it creates this pit in your stomach because it you realize how terrible you actually feel from having that cycle of doing it every weekend and being around those people. And yeah, I and even people pleasing, I feel like um I definitely I've never been a big drinker. I've always secretly hated it. Like I've always been very self-aware of how it made me feel. Yeah. But because I grew up in a very like small country town and like that's all you did. It's like footy, alcohol, like that's very social, but social and you connect through alcohol and yeah, it can be fun at times. But I was also that person that was like, mm, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't sit right with me. And I would drink because I wanted people to think that I enjoyed it and I could connect through them with drinking. And it was, yeah, a form of people pleasing like trying to connect with people through alcohol yeah. and I've always struggled with people pleasing and I'm so excited to talk about this because when I saw you put up that video of switching people pleasing into manipulation I was like oh my god I, since watching that video I have that's it's always popped in to the back of my mind I'm like no you're actually manipulating this situation and it's not good for you. It's not good for the other person. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to be a manipulator. I don't want to be perceived as that. And that's what I'm actually doing when I do that. But what is people pleasing and mm. how do we actually become people pleasers? That's what I want to know. Like, I know it's tied into childhood, but maybe you could talk to us a little bit about what it actually is. Yeah. So you've got to start by thinking about this. So when a child's born, you have a few like primal needs. And the way that I like look at those primal needs is, you have a need to be safe and you have a need to belong because as a child, you're completely helpless. If you don't belong, if you aren't attached or loved by your caregivers, you die. If they, if they don't provide safety for you, you die. And ultimately you're an animal. So you on a very like foundational basic level understand that. So you will do whatever it takes in order to feel safe and to belong or be loved within your household. And that in that is where the people pleasing begins because and I guess the other thing I should say is we also do have an inherent need to be authentic right because if you're not authentic you don't know what you need you don't know how to fulfill your own needs you don't know how to feel safe to to belong to be all those things really like within yourself but the issue is authenticity is not as important as the other ones to survive 
So you prioritize the ones that allow you to survive, which is the safety and the belonging. So what happens is you start to read your family, your household, your primary caregivers, and you become whatever it is that is going to enable you to belong and be safe in those environments. And for a people pleaser, you learned that if you could be like a, if you could predict what it was that other people wanted or needed, and if you could give them that, that you would be, you would belong and you would be safe. And the issue is you do that over a long enough period of time, you lose your authentic self, you become anxious, you become depressed, you're, part, you're doing all these things because you are wanting to belong and you're sacrificing yourself as a result of that. And that's essentially what a people pleaser is doing like over an extended people period of time is they're doing what it is that they believe will keep them connected to people in a meaningful way. And can that come down to also like as children, they are and we are as kids literally narcissists because it doesn't matter what's going on if there's like family problems like even for you growing up as a child you probably thought whatever was going on with your mum we're, we're narcissists as children and you thought that whatever was going on with your mum was a direct impact of, like you thought it was your fault essentially mm. but it, it's not and like kids can think that maybe mum and dad are fighting or dad's come home and he's and he's angry and kids will automatically think that it's because of them like it's their fault is that kind of how it can happen as well? Yeah, I don't like using the term narcissist, especially for children. Like, I think that is overused. Like, I think, but use the word self-centered. Yeah, it is. Also, like, in general, okay, yeah. people just meet people that are self-centered and then they're like, oh, my God, they're a full narcissist. Where it's like, yeah, as a child, you're self-focused. Like, the way your brain, and I'm not a specialist in child psychology, but from what I recall, there's actually a phase of development that you exit where you realize that the world doesn't revolve around you. But that's actually how your brain is like, is operates when your child is exactly that. Like the assumption is you take too much responsibility. You feel like you have control and efficacy over everything. It's like the person who's like, oh, it's my, my fault. My parents got divorced. And as an adult, you're like, that's wild. Like there's no way that's your fault. But that's how it feels for them because that's how it was perceived as a child. So yeah, you're you're very right. Like there's this feeling that they can control every outcome by mani- by changing or manipulating their behavior or the way that they show up to get a certain outcome, you know? And we teach that as well though, right? Because you like, you do the right thing and your mom says, oh, you're a good girl or you do the wrong thing. Like, oh, you're a bad boy. Like we're actually like coding that into them. Like, hey, if you want my praise, behave like this. And if you want my punishment, behave like that. As opposed to creating an environment where it's like, I love you and I accept you no matter who and what you are, but I would still want the best for you. And these are the morals and ethics that we talk about. But it's kind of like, I think a lot of parents don't do the whole, um, we do like punishment as opposed to like guidance. And I even say now, like, I don't know how to get that exactly right. Like, I reckon that's going to cause me tremendous stress when I have kids because I don't, there's a the balance between loving and firmness that you need to figure out. And I think essentially in a lot of people pleasing scenarios, like that balance hasn't been walked very well. Or again, it's just like abandonment, right? Like my mom never did anything but give me so much love and kindness. She was not firm. She was not strict. I never got in trouble, but she would leave and she would get sick. And I thought maybe there was something I could do to change that. That if she loved me enough or if I behaved a certain way, she'd stop leaving. So yeah, it's just however your mind has justified it. It's just a way to stay connected to people, essentially. Yeah. I was going to say, why do you think you are? Why do you think you are a people pleaser? Like, what is it that's happened? Do you think that's led you to that place? 
I don't know. I think maybe like family, definitely family dynamics. I think I had someone in my house who you had to change who you were as soon as they got home because their mood impacted the whole house. And if they weren't happy and if they were angry, then so on as so everyone else was. And yeah, I, I think maybe that's why, but then I'm I'm not really yeah, I'm not too sure. But it's exactly what I just described. Yeah. For your house to be the way you wanted for it to feel safe, for you to be at home, you have to be a certain way. And you made observed everyone do that. It wasn't just you, like the whole household would mold themselves for this person. You go, oh, well, that's what you do, you know? You do what you need to do to make mm-hmm. people be more palatable or more happy or more whatever, you know? You didn't get taught that the only guidance system, the mad- system that really matters is how you feel as long as it's done respectfully. Yeah. Yeah, I was al- always walking on eggshells. That was another thing. And I feel like I still carry that on me, like physically, like the tension in my body from always having that feeling or automatically, like if I hear someone sigh, I'm like, oh my God, what's wrong? Because in our house, if someone sighed, it was automatically you're in trouble or I'm not happy. Therefore, like that gets taken out onto you. And do you still do that? Do you think like, are you, do you still allow yourself to feed into that reaction? So if someone is in a mood or size or whatever, will you always feed into being like, what is wrong? Are you okay? Like, will you keep feeding that cycle? Yes. Like even my housemate, I've actually, um, and my boyfriend, like if they'll sigh, I'll be like, oh my God, what's wrong? They're like, nothing is wrong. Like I'm genuinely just like sighing. But even after doing the Oxygen Advantage course, I know that sighing is a symptom of a dysfunctional breathing pattern. And I have tried to, flip it that way and go, okay, I'm I'm just checking in, but also you're breathing dysfunctionally. But yeah, I still do it because I ask people, even around my brothers on the weekend, they would sigh and they'd be like, I could just feel it in my body that automatically yeah. I was thinking worst case scenario or yeah, it's like an, an inner wound or something that always comes up as soon as that yeah. reaction of a sigh. <laughs> I hear that. Yeah. I feel like something to be mindful of is like, like exactly what I just said. So are you continuing to perpetuate the pattern, right? So say you've identified, hey, I'm a people pleaser. I can see where that's come from. I grew up in a household where I believed that it had to be, that I wasn't safe unless I was aware of everyone else's needs. This isn't serving me anymore. This isn't good for me. It's not good for other people. I want to stop. You now associate that physiological reaction. Like they sigh, you tense up and you say, the thing you need to do now is check what is going on, right? So you can start breaking down that cycle by you hear a sigh and you feel a reaction. And instead of attaching your reaction to their emotion, you just can make it about you and you can go, oh, okay, I'm feeling triggered right now. My body's tense. What do I need to do right now? I need to go regulate my nervous system. I need to ask this person for a hug. I don't need to ask what's wrong with my partner. Hey, can I just have a cuddle? I need to cuddle or I need to regulate my breathing or I need to go journal for a minute. So you're, then you know when you're triggered, it's like, oh, I'm triggered. It's not something's wrong, you know, and you keep them perpetuating that loop. And it's like, cool, you understand what it is, but you keep subconsciously telling yourself you have to keep doing it if you keep feeding into it. So like maybe try something, break that up. And like, even though you want to ask, like, instead of talking to them, talk to yourself and be like, hey, you know what this is, like you grew up in an environment where like 
you felt like this is what you needed to do, but like, it's not what you need to do. Like you're safe. Like, what do you need to do to feel okay? And maybe even saying to the people that know you really well, like, Hey, like I'm feeling a little bit triggered at the moment and I'm perceiving that that yawn might've meant something more than it did. Like, I'm just letting you know that's how I'm feeling rather than actually saying to them what's wrong and feeding into the story that you have, that it's always like your responsibility to be in charge of that. But yeah, because you're right. Unless I start doing stuff like that, it's never going to change. Like that cycle is just going to, I'm just going to keep feeding into it and I'm never going to be able to actually in that moment help myself and work through the trigger and I'll make it about everyone else. But it's actually, in fact, about me. Yeah. Well, it's just a habit. And then that habit just keep. you might actually be over it, but you don't know how to break the habit as well. So like you kind of have to come in different directions and then if you really can't regulate yourself then maybe you go back to it and you go hey like this happened earlier i wanted to check in is something going on but like trying to create more space between like reaction and action i think is really important throughout this healing process and when you notice your triggers and stuff like can you deal with yourself and your trigger before you go make it about whoever else is triggering you and that applies to any trigger not just people pleasing how do you shift the word people please is uh, to help your clients perceive it differently so they almost want to stop. Well, again, I'm going to turn this back on you. Why is it that when you heard me put out that video where I said, I know you like to be like, oh, I'm a people pleaser, like how cute, I'm so like, look how good I am. I put everyone before myself, like, you know, and I'm like, no, you know, you're actually just a manipulator and you're manipulating the the world around you in order for you to get the feelings and relationships that you want, but you tell yourself it's for a good reason. So you're not a bad person, right? You know, like more or less, that's sort of what I said. What was it about that that shifted you? I think it was also when you mentioned the whole, it's a cute phrase, like it's kind of normalized by society because it has this cute phrase. And I was like, because I, I love looking at things in perspective when it's like, society's normalized this common thing, but it doesn't actually mean it's normal. So as soon as you said that, I was like, hang on, she's right here. And then the way I kind of saw it was like, I'm kind of being a victim to my circumstance and I'm being fake. Like, where's the responsibility of me taking charge that I'm actually manipulating that situation or this person and I'm not being true to myself. And I know that I I don't like being a people pleaser because it is exhausting, but when you said that they are being manipulated because like it's not actually what I'm wanting to do or what I'm wanting to say. It's also not just a negative for me. Sorry, the doorbell. But a negative thing for them as well. That's when I was kind of like, oh my, I don't know. I just had this moment of realization where, yeah, I just thought of it. I don't know. I'm not very good at articulating my words. You can probably already have figured that through us, but I think that's a good like rephrase that I guess it, it is essentially what I was trying to do which is people pleasers aren't worried about them they find out that something's costing them they don't really care right and essentially that's how you're trying to frame it inside this isn't serving you why do you keep doing this they're like but I don't care about me I care about everyone else I care about that when you then make them realize they're not being altruistic, that there is nothing like they're not, because, you know, they, they're that person that says, I just do everything for everyone. No, you don't. You do everything for yourself because you're the one who wants this. Like, no one else asks for it but you, you know. And I think that's a big part of it that shifts is at that point in your journey, when you're a people pleaser, you're not really about you. 
So trying to motivate you by you serving you is a long journey. You are motivated by others. So when you frame it as, hey, manipulation, and that's not a word anyone likes when it's framed like that. You don't, no one likes that idea. They automatically go, oh, wow, like I'm not actually helping people. I'm not loving people. I'm, I'm harming them. I'm giving, like, you know, I'm, they're missing out on an opportunity to be themselves, to have real connection, to have real whatever, to help themselves because I'm doing everything for them or because I'm doing this or I'm doing that. And I think shifting that, it helps motivate them in a different way. It's not just about you now. Like you said, it's also about the other person. And when you're in that place in your journey, like it's a lot easier. And that's essentially how it happened for me was like, I was really dirty on someone, two people. And I felt like they'd manipulated me. And I was like, just talking to my coach about it. And I was really upset about it. And then he kind of like, it's a John Martini thing. He kind of like turned it back around on me and was like, what are all the times that you've manipulated? And I was like, I don't do that. And then we really broke down, like, what is manipulation? It's like doing something to get an outcome. And I was like, by the end of it, I just realized every single thing we do is a constant manipulation. Every time you open your mouth, you are being manipulative. Because you pick a tone in a way and you say, like, it, it doesn't make it dirty. Manipulation actually isn't dirty in its, in its natural sense, but it's what is the intention? Like, were you, what outcome were you trying to achieve? Were you trying to fool someone? And when you really break it down like that, like, hey, as a people pleaser, you are trying to fool people into believing a version of you that's not true. It just becomes a lot harder to perpetuate and keep doing, I think. So and helped me shift a lot. And yeah, I think that's what it's about. It's kind of like, like you said, that perspective shift of it's not cute anymore. It's actually like not a very nice thing to do. Do you find that it helps your clients when you shift it that way? Like, do you see positive outcomes with your clients when you teach them about the no, it's actually a form of manipulation and it's not cute? Yeah, it depends on the client, right? I think it depends on the person. Like not everyone's able and ready to receive it in that way. I think like you mentioned being quite masculine in your energy. And I think it probably serves like, more masculine people, like you can come at them that way. I think you have to be careful. Like someone's really like shame-based and really like struggling anyway, it kind of can just load more shame. So you kind of have to know when it's the right reframe for someone and how to deliver it. Um, but yeah, in most cases, I think it's definitely something that I will intertwine in, but you kind of have to pick your when, you know, because like if you've built an entire identity around that, and then you take that away from them before you've built up other things, I think it could be detrimental. But like everything, it's like a dance of knowing when to bring it in and how to bring it in. Why do you think that some people can take on advice? Like I know everyone's at different stages in their life, but even me, I there was a podcast episode and it was discipline. Lack of discipline makes you ugly. And I, the, the podcast episode was just saying that people who exercise and look after themselves, like it's attractive, like they're able to be disciplined and do all of those things, but someone who is not, it essentially makes you ugly in a way because like you, there's no self-care and you're not looking after yourself. It, it was this whole, it was an amazing episode and I shared it and I took a lot away from it and I was, it was tough love, but not, not everyone is able to take that on, right? Like Why? Why do you think that is? Because, yeah, some people can get offended and upset and then they do get, they feel those feelings of shame. Yeah. And I definitely think that a few years ago I would have taken on that information of if you're a people pleaser, you're actually a manipulator. I probably would have gotten really upset and defensive and 
I would have let my ego get it in the way and told me, you know, that that's not true. You're doing this because you just love everyone and you're putting everyone's needs before your own instead of like allowing myself to go, hang on, Nadi is right. Mm. Take on that advice and mm. apply it and see what can happen. And that's the same with the discipline makes you ugly. What can you take from that? Do you know what I'm trying to say? A million dollar question, right? Like, because it's kind of like, why is that there and some people are not others? Like the first thing my mind sort of goes to is an imbalance of feminine and masculine energy. Like when you're too much in your feminine, you're in, you can, you, you're toxic feminine. You're in a kind of a victim mindset. It's just so much emotion, so much overwhelm. It's like, there is no, that doing, going, getting aspect that comes with the masculine is just not there. And they've just. And why does that happen? That we need a whole other episode for me to go into why a person would end up. But again, it's it's all going to come down to like how you were raised and how that environment either enabled you to like um, emotionally regulate. So Because discipline requires an ability to emotionally regulate. If you have no capacity to regulate or like to go, if your, your my maladaptive coping mechanism was to go, I became overly masculine and action oriented. So I had heaps of discipline, even though it was causing other negative effects versus someone that was in a toxic feminine, like that might've maybe just as easily happened in my environment. And kind of the why of that, like, I don't actually know because there's certain situations of like, I look at how someone grew up and it's like, you could have become a toxic feminine or a toxic masculine, but all too masculine. Why one kid goes one way and another goes the other? Like, I don't know that anyone fully understands that. Like, for example, say you had like an abusive parent, like a really abusive father, you could become a really masculine woman who wants to protect herself and never end up in that environment again. Therefore, you're like that. Or you could become a toxic feminine who was never given the opportunity to make decision, make choice. So she's just become like a victim of her circumstance because that's all he ever allowed her to be. And then that's what she remained. So that's like the same circumstance and two kids could have gone two different ways. Like why that happens? I think that literally is the million dollar question because it's kind of the joke of like, probably going to fuck up your kid anyway. If you can, suck him up that way rather than this way, you know? And I, I think maybe that comes a little bit from like, I think like this is a very anecdotal observation that like, um, when you feel, um, not enough and, but there was like a certain degree of pressure, like you kept wanting to, rise to that occasion you know what I mean like those kids that like wanted to prove that they could versus the kid that maybe never felt like there was just never a chance that they were going to you know what I mean they had like star pupil oldest sibling they were never going to be as good as them so they just kind of like have no self-efficacy they're just like oh like what's the point I just can't you know but yeah and I think there's so many factors that boil into that that it would be impossible for me to like break it down properly but I think that's like something we should all definitely like ponder on and ask ourselves like the people that I know are, that are that way versus the people that I know are this the way, like, what is it? And to be fair, I actually have one other observation of that. If you had it hard when you were younger, you tend to have this, I'm going to be better when I'm older versus people that have this idea that their childhood was perfect and then their adulthood was hard. It's like they became victims and it's like, I'm, it's never going to be as good as it was when I was like, I'm thinking, I, I know there's a person I know in particular who I think of and it's like, he's, um, he, and you know, his dad was like famous and like he grew up in a certain way where he just, everything was great when he was a little kid. And then it got really hard when he was a teenager. And it's like, 
he became just this victim of perpetually wishing he was five years old again, you know, and it kind of that that's probably something I've observed with clients. It's like, oh, there was nothing. My childhood was great. But then my teenage years and my early 20s became really hard. And I never learned that self-efficacy. I never learned that resilience. And I had to go and I had to learn that, right? So, and I guess in that, you would say, you don't have to traumatize your kids, but you have to teach them resilience. So how are you, what kind of difficult things are you teaching them to overcome? So they build some level of self-efficacy and self-trust and ability to do the tough things, you know? And I think that's probably very much where it comes from is whether you were ever taught resilience. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think resilience plays a part in like the mental health issues that we see today? 100%. Yeah, 100%. Because that's it. Like resilience is where you just end up in that victim mindset where there's nothing you can do about it. It's all too hard and too heavy. I I like know people that will refuse things like ice baths. They mentally can't do it. They don't have the resilience. I'm like, this will create resilience for you if you keep doing things but yeah they get to a point where they don't have resilience because their parents have done everything for them and then they get stuck in a victim mindset and then they don't know how to shift out of the depression and the anxiety that they've created for themselves and then they get addicted to the cycle like I know I was very much someone who was addicted to my anxiety and drama and constantly listening to negative things and poor me and victim and unless you Gain the understanding and the awareness of it. I don't, it's so hard to actually move forward with it. Well, I think this goes back to the partying thing, right? Things will just get shit enough that you will realize or they won't. And I think that's ultimately like shit. Get stung in the ass by your own shit enough times that you go, okay, something has to change. No one's come to save me but me. And you start to figure it out and you start to want self-awareness. Or like, um, what is it? The region beta paradox. You stay comfortably numb. Like if things were worse, you'd actually be better off. So things just stay kind of shit, but not shit enough. So you just stay in your patterns and in your toxicity and in the same sort of thing. Or things will get really bad. You realize you have to do something about it and your whole life gets better. And I think that's why like post breakup, all of a sudden everyone's changing their lives because the, the loss of that person and the feelings you're feeling in the breakup is what's led you to go, okay, there's obviously something Maybe there was something I was doing that wasn't serving me. What can I do to improve that? And then there triggers the change. People will keep leaving as long as you're trying so hard to hold on to them rather than just being who you want to be. You know, like essentially like everything we've broken into today, like I did and was all these things really ultimately just because I wanted to be loved and I wanted people to stay. And ultimately, that is what perpetuated that pattern continuing for so long. So if I could have figured out a lot younger that when you just do you, the people that like you will rock up and those people will stay and they will be amazing. If I could have figured that out earlier, it would have saved me like a lot of heartache, but I probably wouldn't be as good of a coach. So like, it's probably a good thing I can't go back in time and give her that advice, but that's the advice I'd give other people is, yeah, like that thing that you're wanting to get you will get it when you stop trying so hard to get it and you just be where can we find you on social media if anyone wanted to reach out to you yeah so um it's nadia.sophia.coaching on instagram um facebook and tiktok i think it's all nadia sophia coaching uh, and then at the moment my website's still www.mindandcore.com um, because that's my old branding, but I'm moving over to, yeah, it'll just be Nadia Sophia coaching in most places. So yeah, please 
reach out if there's anything that I've spoken about and you want to hear more about it. Um, I love all this stuff. So we'd love to keep going. And yeah, we might have to pick up another day to get into more of the masculine feminine stuff in the future. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye, doll.